It's Tuesday, September 4th, and this is The Daily Dive. The midterm elections are only a couple of months away, and state legislatures are poised for big changes. More women are running for office, and they have a great rate of victory. In Michigan, for example, a woman will appear on the ballot for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and in several House and Senate races. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for what this all means for the midterms. Next, nature never fails to amaze. A revolutionary corn discovery could save fertilizer, limit runoff, and transform the way the largest crop in America is grown. Scientists have found a corn varietal in Mexico that goes through a process called nitrogen fixation. It basically creates its own fertilizer. Anna Groves, reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, fills us in on how the process works and if this news can be used for a more sustainable future. Finally, a man known as the Dine and Dash Dater has finally been caught after years on the prowl. Paul Gonzalez would meet women on dating apps, take them out, order a robust dinner, and then leave and never come back, forcing the women to pay the huge bill. Lauren Strapagil, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for how much jail time he may be facing and what was in those dinner orders. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. two years, we know that governance should not be done via tweet, right? And it should not be done with threats or lies or hate. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So we're about two months away from the midterm elections. Everybody keeps talking about, is there going to be a big blue wave? What's going to happen to the House? But another thing is happening also. There's a lot of women running for office. And a lot of U.S. state legislatures across the country are poised for big changes. You wrote an article talking about that. And we can start off in Michigan, where the numbers are pretty crazy about how much it might be changing. We've passed Labor Day, and that means that it is officially campaign season. We're in full swing. And you're right. We took a look at Michigan, a state with really an average number of women in their state legislature. They're actually ranked number 25 in the country for the number of women that they have represented in state lawmakers. The absolute average percentage of about 25 percent of their lawmakers being women. And they've just had an explosion of women filing to run for state legislative seats. We know that historically women win about 60% of the time and they have a little bit better than half and half record at winning state legislative seats across the country. And if you look at a state like Michigan, currently 25% of their lawmakers are women and they win at just the historic rates of 60% or maybe even a little bit below the historic rates, they get to just 50%, they still could see their legislative body grow to be 40% women. And this would be a historic change nationally. And the number of women that are being elected to office, that trend is really happening nationwide. Michigan, they're on the ballot for everything. Governor, attorney general, secretary of state, House and Senate seats. So they're poised to gain somewhere, at least for sure. That's right. In Michigan, on the Democratic side, every statewide candidate is going to be a woman from uh, the current sitting United States Senator Debbie Stabenow to Gretchen Whitmer, their gubernatorial nominee, every one of them. And we just see women doing much better, at least on the primary ballot this year. Women turn up in larger numbers and that bodes really well for those women in Michigan. 
it really promotes more women running. There was a study done that when women are winning seats, that more women start running for office also. And I didn't know this in the 90s, that that was the last big explosion of women in a lot of these seats. And it led to a lot of changes in policy that women feel strongly about. So that could happen again. That's right. 1994, the last what we called year of the woman, calling this year again the year of the woman. I'm always reluctant to say that all women care about a certain issue or that because they're women, they're going to support X, Y, or Z. But we do know historically that women have been more willing to compromise on fiscal matters and to address issues like abortion, like paid maternity leave, and like health care. And we do know that the number of women who are running this year are talking about those issues specifically and making them part of their campaign. You mentioned that a lot of these gains and a lot of women running for office right now are on the Democratic side. I know that when President Trump was elected, there was this kind of surge of people opposed to him. But is this thing happening on the Republican side as well? It's happening to a much smaller degree on the Republican side. We're seeing a little bit of what might be a response to the number of Democratic women running, which is Republican women running against them. But you're right. Much of this is being attributed to an opposition to President Trump. We saw the women's rally in Washington, D.C. I was there, just thousands of women packing the streets, very angry about Donald Trump. And they haven't lost that anger. They haven't lost that fire. I like to tell people that if you think that the Access Hollywood video didn't cost Donald Trump the 2016 election, or it didn't, be confident it may cost him the 2018 election. Women were just so angry about that video and about his election, uh, and they have not forgotten it. What about an identity? This is veering off a little bit, but identity for the Democrats. I mean, the president is going to be riding with his supporters through the midterms and beyond that, and he's going to be banking a lot on the economy. But what about like an identity for the Democrats? I feel like there isn't one yet. I know a lot of women are running and that's great. But what's the overall picture for them? Yeah, it's really hard in midterm elections when there's not sort of one person on everyone's ballot to unite or not one person in the White House to sort of unite around similar points. And the Democratic Party is doing this strategically. They're saying, look, a district in California is not the same as a district in Alabama. A district in Pennsylvania is not the same as a district in Kentucky. And we need to be aware of that. And so they're trying to adapt their strategy so that, okay, they don't have a a unifying single issue that all of them are saying we need to make this change. But that's okay, they say, because they're unified on some broad principles and they can find a way to coexist and work together, even if they're Democrats, but not all say for Medicare for all or for the same gun restrictions or even for the same immigration platform. All of the primaries are done now and we're getting ready for the general. The midterms are about two months away. Set us up for that. What are we looking for? I know control of the House is key. We were talking about that blue wave possibility, Trump and the economy still going strong. These midterms are going to be the first real test that Donald Trump will stand at a ballot box, uh, followed by the first really big test when he stands for re-election. But this is going to be a referendum on the president. And have no doubt the president wants it to be a referendum on him. He thinks that's the way to get his voters to turn out. You're right. We should be watching very closely what's happening in the House of Representatives. Can Democrats pick up the 23 seats that they need in order to win control of the chamber? and 
watching the Senate, we think the Senate will be very close. Observers, reporters see that it, the path for Democrats taking the Senate is very difficult. It would take a very large wave for them to do so, but not impossible. It would just be a huge political feat to see that occur. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a huge undertaking to try and figure out how to get this nitrogen fixation process from this corn into corn that can actually be grown worldwide or in the Midwest. Joining us now is Anna Groves. She was a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She's now going to be an editor at Discover Magazine. So we're going to be talking about this amazing corn. It's always interesting to me how things in nature provide for themselves and then later on, we're trying to catch up and, and use it everywhere else. In the small area of southern Mexico, there's a variety of corn that is very special. And researchers believe that this could ultimately transform the way corn is grown in America and around the world. What do we know about this special corn? What we know so far is that the corn seems to have a special relationship with some bacteria that's helping it get its own fertilizer. It gets nitrogen, which is the main ingredient in a lot of fertilizers, from these bacteria that are growing in this weird goopy gel that grows on these little nubby finger-like root structures that grow out of the corn stalk. So they have these finger-like roots growing out of the stalks. The roots secrete this goopy mucus. And the bacteria yeah. leave there. And then from there, it's just the chemical process. They take in the nitrogen from the air, the bacteria do. Mm -hmm. They convert it. I think they call it nitrogen fixing. And it yes. comes out in this gel and it drops down. And then it, the corn reabsorbs the nitrogen. So basically, it doesn't need to be fertilized. It makes its own fertilizer. Right. It doesn't need the nitrogen, at least. It might still need some other chemicals like phosphorus or potassium that plants will need to grow. But nitrogen is the biggest component of fertilizer. Scientists have found this. Now they're all involved. They want to see if they can use this, maybe crossbreed this into other corn. Mars Inc. is involved, the candy company. How are they involved, first off? They were the ones that originally found the corn. This man, Howard Shapiro, had been traveling around looking for locally adapted crops that were being grown that might have some special traits that would help agriculture in America and elsewhere. He was working for the Mars Company and now is an adjunct professor at the University of California, Davis. So he was working with these researchers later on once he found the corn to start working on figuring out how, how it was doing what it was doing. And they've been working on this research for a decade. It's funny, they even said we wanted to double check everything before we came out with this conclusion because it sounds outrageous that yes. this corn makes its own nitrogen and it self-fertilizes almost. How did they come to this discovery? What tests did they do on it? What did they discover specifically about this corn? They did a bunch of different tests on the corn. So the first thing they did, the easiest thing, was just to test this gel that's growing on the stem to see if it had any of the byproducts of this nitrogen fixation process. And it did. It had the nitrogenase enzyme. After they found the nitrogenase in the gel, they wanted to test to see how much nitrogen the plant was taking up from its roots because a plant that is getting its own nitrogen from some other method is not going to take up as much nitrogen fertilizer. So they fertilized the corn with a special fertilizer that allowed them to trace the molecules of nitrogen into the plant using a 
what's called nitrogen isotopes that are a little bit heavier than plain old regular nitrogen. So when they did that test, they could confirm that these corn plants are not taking up very much nitrogen from the soil like a normal corn plant would. They were surprised um, but, that everything, all the tests they were doing were coming up positive. It was yeah. that little gel that was doing all the stuff. You know, it, this happens in other things like soybeans kind of make their own nitrogen, but it right. hadn't been demonstrated before in things like corn. There's some limitations though. There's problems this corn has like a nine month growing season. Regular yeah. sweet corn takes 60 to 100 days. So about three months, three and a half months, whatever. It's not necessarily quite sustainable just yet. But what are their plans? What are they trying to do with this? This is going to be a huge undertaking to try and figure out how to get this nitrogen fixation process from this corn into corn that can actually be grown worldwide or in the U.S. Midwest, whatever your goal is, it's going to take a lot of work because this corn is specifically adapted to this area in Mexico. The growing season is super long and the corn is also super tall. It's like, I forget what the 16, I think it's feet, 16 tall, feet tall, yeah, which is really tall. So what would need to happen for this to be implemented is plant breeders now would have to work on how to either the old fashioned way through crossing and growing these corns, try and get this nitrogen fixation trait into our current varieties of corn that we grow in the Midwest. Researchers and scientists are excited about this, though, because if it could reduce the nitrogen fertilizer we use, yes. it all helps. And they say that it might be incremental and whatnot, but anything to limit that oh, yes. fertilizer, that nitrogen stuff, the consumption, the energy consumption that we use, anything helps. Researchers have been trying to get corn to fix nitrogen in a way that mimics soybeans for decades, but they just found this corn that was doing it in sort of a different way. It's really the holy grail, I think. These farmers have been working with this corn varietal for as long as they've lived in the area. This is in their right. area. So you mentioned in the story at the end that it wasn't in the actual published research, but the farmers there actually collect the gel and they keep it in their homes and jars and they use it for a variety of different things. And yeah. the Mars company wanted to make sure, say, hey, they're going to be protected. We're not going to steal their crops and, you know, take all the gel and things like that. So that was kind of an interesting little thing that, that you put in the in the piece. Yeah, I heard a lot of conversation on Twitter about that, actually, right when the story broke, that everyone was worried that the Oaxacan farmers were going to get taken advantage of in this situation. And from what I hear, it sounds like the Mars company is really going through great lengths to make sure that that does not happen. But they do have a deal with them to be able to study it all. So <laughs> I think they probably yeah. all also stand to benefit some. Either way, it's a cool science stuff. It's great. And it potentially down the road could provide us with reducing nitrogen consumption, all that stuff. So it'd be pretty good. Anna Groves, formerly of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a new editor at Discover Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We ordered a, sa a salad with shrimp, filet mignon. <laughs> yeah, he went all out. Joining us now is Lauren Strapagill, reporter for BuzzFeed News. We're going to be talking about this story. It's kind of a fun one, but it does kind of suck for the people involved. Police have finally caught the man known as the Dine and Dash Dater. What he was doing was asking women out, taking them out for nice dinners, and then leaving them with a bill. And he did this over the course of a few years. What do we know about this guy? His name is Paul Gonzalez, and allegedly what he did, exactly as you said, he would take women out on dates, order a lot of food, a lot of wine, have a really good time, and then suddenly make an excuse and never come back to the table. 
he met all these women over dating apps, different variety of dating apps. The woman I talked to, Marjorie Moon, was, I think, among the first alleged victims when they met on Plenty of Fish. I was going through some of these stories and seeing what he was ordering with Marjorie Moon. He ordered some wine, a chicken dinner, four lobster tails, and he topped it all off with coffee and chocolate souffle. So he had a big appetite. So what was his excuse to get out of this? In this particular case with Marjorie, he allegedly said he wanted to go get his phone charger from his car. And so she actually waited about five minutes and something fell off and she realized that he just wasn't going to come back. So she checked in with the maitre d' who confirmed that he had left the building. In another case, one of the other women he did this to, he said that he was worried because his aunt was very sick and he was waiting on a phone call from his mom And his phone was dying. So he's like, I got to go to my car and get my car charger. I'll be right back. And even the woman said, oh, what? You're not coming back? And then sadly, that's exactly what happened. And he ditched her with like a $130 bill. These were some pretty amateur excuses also for leaving a table. (laughs) But they worked. And yeah, Marjorie, she was left with a $250 bill, probably from all those lobster tails. So how did this go, uh, the reporting? Because in one of the cases, the woman said she didn't say anything to the restaurant. She was just more embarrassed than anything else. Had hurt her pride mostly. So how did they finally catch up with this guy? So it wasn't just women he was scamming, allegedly. He once, according to police, walked out on the hair appointment with dye still in his hair. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So and also into the situations with women, the restaurant ended up footing the bill. Those were the more, I would say, criminal allegations. And I think that's what ultimately got him caught. But actually, so Marjorie, unlike some of the other women, back when this happened to her in May of 2016, she posted about it on Facebook and it kind of went viral at the time. That's how the local media got word of this Dine and Dash dater. So other women, as it happened to them, realized that they were part of the same scheme. And so the police ultimately ended up going to Marjorie because she had made that viral Facebook post. And they said that this was going on for years. So I can only imagine that this happened to countless other people that never really reported it or don't want to report it because they might be embarrassed or whatnot. I'm sure it might have even happened more than just that. There are eight women that police know about, but Marjorie even told me, I mean, she was embarrassed. It's an embarrassing thing to have happen. So this happens to you unless you know that there's some kind of serial situation going on. You might think that maybe the guy just didn't like you, which is really sad because he was just trying to get a free meal, apparently. (laughs) All of these things happen in the Los Angeles area. So what kind of fines, what kind of jail time is he facing as a result of all this? He could be looking at up to 13 years in state prison because he's facing 10 felony charges as well as some misdemeanors. And so the maximum we're looking at is 13 years, but we'll see what charges actually stick. And he has pleaded not guilty and will appear court next month. It's so weird because they mentioned that he defrauded these victims of more than 950 bucks. So yeah, it sucks. I mean, throw the book at him for being a jerk for ditching all these women but 950 bucks is that worth 13 years in prison i think they're holding him on three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars bail it just seems like a little skewed i'm not defending the guy at all it just seems a little much for 950 bucks the more serious allegations are about walking on that haircut and when the restaurants actually had to pay the bill more so than when these poor women were stuck with the bill i think it's unlikely he is going to see 13 years in state prison for all this but i think something might stick Right. The official charges are seven counts of extortion, two counts of attempted extortion, 
and then one count of grand theft. So all those are felonies. I guess that's what trumps up the time in jail and everything. <laughs> it's yeah, just... and, again, and that's a maximum. So we'll right, we have exactly. to actually see how it plays out. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe this guy. You got to be careful when you meet people on dating apps online and everything like that. You never know what you're getting into. I guess that's part of it. You're trying to meet new people, but there's always people willing to scam somebody. I've seen this before. There was a story, I mean, a few years ago about this blogger, this woman who would meet guys on dating apps just to get a free meal out of it. I mean, she didn't run on the bill. She just let the guy pay. But I think there's probably <laughs> more than one person out there who's eating very well thanks to dating apps. Right. Well, at least for now, the Dine and Dash dater is has been caught. Lauren Strapagill, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.